Welcome to the third series of The Man Who Was Scared to Death. Once again, I meet people who work and spend time in the presence of death in order to help me come to terms with my eventual demise. In this episode, I talk to Kate Dean, Reverend Roslyn Hill Chapel in Hampstead. As a Unitarian, Kate is interested in individual freedom and choice, equality and rational thought. The latter might be an issue for me. I'm Reverend Kate Dean. I'm the minister of Roslyn Hill Unitarian Chapel in Hampstead in North London. We're a Unitarian spiritual community. We call ourselves a spiritual home for open minds. So this congregation was actually formed, established in 1692, so over 330 years ago. And it would have been a non-conformist dissenting group meeting in secret and uh, dissenting from the kind of the normal the norms of the state religion at the time. But over the time, over the years, they looked at the Bible, discussed and discerned, and by the time this chapel was built in 1862, they were solidly Unitarian, which means that they believed in the oneness of all creation. We believe that Jesus was a great leader and a great teacher, but not necessarily the Son of God, unless we are all the sons and daughters of God, the God of our understanding. And so from the 1960s, we've broadened out to draw wisdom from all the different world religions, from humanist philosophy, being inspired by the arts, by music. And so we still have Sunday morning services um, and some Sunday evening meditative gatherings. Um, But we really want to come together as a community and celebrate life. So... Is there a general consensus then within within this of afterlife or, you know, what happens to us mere mortals when we pass away? I'm sorry to say no, there isn't a general consensus. Uh, we don't have any kind of creed or dogma. We don't have a definition of God or the divine. And I suppose we believe we believe in the here and now more than the hereafter because we can't know what will happen after death. So we believe about, we believe in having a good life, living a good life and and leaving the world a better place than you perhaps found it. So we've obviously looked at some of the, the activities that go on here. You know, I know you mentioned the paganistic aspect that you have that seven times a year. Do you get a broad no pun intended, church of people, you know, would you get religious people coming to the, the, your, your service? We have some people who would describe themselves as free Christians, so they still see Jesus as the greatest example of a human being. They will still follow the Bible as their main source of wisdom. Um, and then we have this broad spectrum that runs from, as I say, free Christian through to agnostic, through to those in the pagan spirituality tradition who see God in nature or the divine in nature, all the way through to atheist humanists and we have yeah a broad enough church to be able to accommodate everyone as long as people are kind of accepting and tolerant of each other's views then we seem to get on pretty well i grew up in somerset and i wasn't christened my mum thought i should choose my own religion and actually around the dinner table my mum and my grandmother would say oh we think that jesus was probably just a human being he had a lot of good things to say but he was probably human so actually i grew up with unitarian views in my household but I didn't know that that was the name for it and I went to a Church of England primary school because that was the village school around 10 I thought I ought to actually choose my own religion because everyone else seemed to be mostly Christian and I I did a bit of 
DIY research at my local library. I quite liked the idea of Hinduism, of reincarnation. We'll get on to that later because that is a personal favourite of mine. I settled on Buddhism for a while, but being a 10, 11 year old, there's only so much you can kind of understand about the Buddhist philosophy. Became vegetarian and at the time, uh, I don't know if you remember this, you couldn't buy biscuits which didn't have animal fat in. And I just got sick of people saying, oh, you can't eat those biscuits, they've got animal fat in. So I had to make a choice between biscuits and Buddhism, and I'm sorry to say, biscuits won out. And then I continued on without really thinking too much about religion. There was a group of born-again Christians in my in my teenage years. I think because there was a really cute boy who was in a Christian rock band and everyone suddenly got religion at the time, uh, but I didn't, and continued on my kind of my academic and then career path I actually trained in uh, product design industrial design my first job was with a large toy corporation so I was designing craft kits and then board games and that kind of thing and it was while I was working for the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts which has their world bureau just down the road in Hampstead that I I went to a friend's very Christian wedding and I loved the sense of community but I didn't I knew I couldn't follow that particular path I couldn't follow one particular theological path so I had a bit of a heart-to-heart with a work colleague and said I need something for my spirituality and she said oh you should try that Unitarian chapel up the road she said a friend of mine went there and they were they were really friendly, but it was not quite Christian enough for her. And I thought, that sounds intriguing. So I came along to the service and the minister spoke about Jesus as I have done, not being the son of God, but still having a lot of good things to say. And I just felt at home, I felt I'd found my, my people. For uh, an atheist such as myself, that does, it makes perfect sense. But it sounds like through your youth, you still had um, an inclination to follow religion. Do you think there's something that gives people that is actually really worthwhile because obviously there's you know negative elements to it and rituals and, and, and war and decimation but it seems you were very drawn to that world anyway. Yeah I I think so uh, my husband is a happy humanist rather than an angry atheist and he also agrees with me sees the the power of the human spirit although he wouldn't use the word spirit perhaps to come together and and to do good in the world together and if you have spiritual or religious communities that have that intention, then I think it's it's very worthwhile. I also think that there are probably some people who are quite happy not to have that in their life, and that's fine. But for some people, there is this, this pull, this seeking for not necessarily even answers because I think certainly in our in our denomination as Unitarians we don't have a creed we don't have a dogma so we're not going to give you the answers but we at least can explore the questions together. So moving on then to to things like existence what are your how would you summarize your general understanding of why we're here what what we're doing here and then obviously what happens to us? Gosh well that's a big question. It's a tiny question. (laughs) Why are we here? I think we're here to be the best form of ourselves that we can be and to be kind to one another. I once had a criticism that my sermons, about my sermons not being quite intellectual enough and if, if Reverend, Kate, Reverend Kate seems to think the answer to all of the world's problems is to just be more kind. I was like, well, yes. It probably wouldn't be a bad starting point, would it? That's what I believe. And so kindness and listening. I think we're here to listen, to make connections with each other and, and, and to walk, walk a path that treads lightly on the earth. 
And yeah, in terms of what that means about what happens after we die, I think I leave that to um, each individual. And when I speak to people about death, I try to meet them where they are. I don't kind of impose my views on them. I happen to believe, though, that, that something must continue to exist, even down to, you know, matter can be no, you know, cannot be created or destroyed. I feel like something must be there, but I don't necessarily feel that it's going to be conscious. It's probably beyond our understanding. So I... I try to help people to discuss their own feelings about death without kind of prescribing a particular model. Is it a subject that you've often thought about in your life? Was there a certain point in your life when maybe you thought about it more? I know you said obviously you've got a child that sometimes does spark into people's minds about their own mortality. Is, is it something that you had an interest in or, or, or would you describe yourself as living each day, should we say? I think I'm, I'm more in the here and now than in the hereafter. But I am interested in the subject in that I know that it can cause people a lot of pain. And so that's why I started organizing death cafes in in this congregation for, for within this chapel not necessarily for the congregation for anyone who wants to come but also in the unitarian community i was serving before i came here and in that in that group you have such a range of of views and and reasons why they want to talk about death so there are some people who come because they've recently had a bereavement or they've had a loss many years ago which they still can't quite come to terms with there are some people who 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 feel perhaps because they're elderly or because they have other health concerns that they are closer to death than they once were and they're trying to kind of come to terms with that. There are younger people who come and that's because they don't have anyone else to talk to about it. Their friends don't want to talk talk about it. So they come here and they feel such a sense of relief that they can be open and uh, and talk about it. For me personally, I haven't really had a hang up about talking about death ever since I was uh, a child. I was thinking about this earlier, actually, because my mum is uh, very environmentally conscious. And when I was doing my product design degree, which was my first degree, she came up to me very excited because she'd found this multifunctional piece of furniture that started life as a bookshelf, but it could be converted into a coffin. So, so I all, you know, we were death was not a kind of taboo in my household so when I realized that it was a taboo in so many parts of our society I just felt compelled to try and keep that conversation alive and and create a safe space where people feel comfortable enough to express themselves and talk about it in the way that they want. We'll move on to Deaf Cafe in a bit I just completely forgot one thing we haven't quite bridges how you came from just coming here to becoming a reverend. Unitarians believe in the priesthood of all believers um, and the freedom of the pulpit which means that you don't have to be an ordained or qualified minister to lead a service. And I became quite involved with the congregation here. Quite quickly, the minister invited me to, to speak at a service. And, and then when the minister left and we were waiting for the next minister to be found, I was part of the group that continued leading services, organising them. And some people did encourage me to go into ministry and train to be a minister and I realized that actually all of my different roles as product designer, as a project manager, as a kind of youth trainer um, and a bit of HR, there are various different roles I've had over different careers, would actually combine with my 
personal interests which are related to creativity and and bringing people together to form form a ministry it's a very unusual role and it takes lots of different it has lots of different parts to it and I can't say that I'm good at every single one of them but I was encouraged however I felt I had found my spiritual community and I didn't want to leave that so it took me quite a few years to finally come to the decision that I wanted to go off and train to become minister because there was no guarantee of coming back here so uh, I did my training over two years part of the training was a master's degree in Abrahamic religions so looking at how the how modernity and modern life has affected Islam, Judaism and Christianity. For me, it was such an eye-opener because I had come from a creative degree, not really having to write academic essays, to suddenly having to dive into this subject matter. But actually, part of my the dissertation I chose to write was about death and funerals and funeral practices, the ways that they have changed over the last few decades. And that gave me a really good preparation for ministry and for now conducting funeral services and and memorials myself. So is there an atypical type of funeral you do? I'm guessing not. I'm guessing that you would cater for all sorts of, of, of wants and desires. Yeah, certainly. The Well, the conclusions from my research actually was that whereas say 30 40 years ago where people were more aligned to a particular religious tradition they may go to a funeral director and have a quick chat which church do you go to which coffin do you want what's the date going to be but these days people aren't connected to a spiritual community so the funeral director has actually taken on more of that role of pastoral care and helping to plan the funeral. The other thing that I think has changed is this emphasis that used to be on whatever the the theology was at the time so it might be preaching about you know eternal life or or you know that side of things but actually things are much more person-centered now so as you said the celebration of the life of the person is very much part of the way that we conduct funerals these days. Do you think that doing the death cafe as, as you do and obviously dealing with people who are grieving in terms of funerals do you think your own view of mortality has changed over the years? Mm, that's a good question. I think my experience of bereavement both personally and also supporting those people who are bereaved has somehow has made me it's difficult to describe perhaps made me take it more seriously I know that sounds a bit kind of of an odd way of putting it but I think until you are touched by death and mortality you can be a bit kind of a bit flippant a bit laissez-faire about it and and what I connect with is the emotions that people are feeling, the pain and the suffering they are feeling, as well as their ability to remember the the joyful moments of being with that person. And so in terms of my own views, I think that my thoughts about what might happen after death or my thoughts about death in general haven't necessarily changed. It's just my approach and my kind of sensitivity, perhaps, to the way people are feeling when they are bereaved. The death cafe, is the death cafe based here? We run a death cafe, but it was originally founded, I think, maybe 15, 20 years ago in the secular world. And so we, the death cafe that we run abides by their guidelines. And so we don't ever have kind of guest speakers. We don't have a kind of 
pre-arranged agenda. We do have a structure that we have created over the last couple of years that seems to work really well in that we start with everyone in a circle. There are usually maybe 20, 25 people and we ask, you know, why ask everyone to share why they've come that's a kind of standard death cafe thing to do uh, we then go and have a break to get our tea and cake and then we sit in smaller groups of about six people and everyone has five minutes of uninterrupted time to share what they want to about the subject and when we started people were getting kind of agitated because they weren't sure whether their five minutes was up so we invested in some small sand timers so everyone has a visual reminder and I think that's the part that people so appreciate to actually be heard to be listened to without interruption without judgment and and it really deeply connects people who come in as strangers about to speak about this subject that is so difficult and then they leave after a couple of hours as if they'd known each other all their lives it's just a magical transformation have you ever met anyone like myself in these death cafes who seems to have an obsession should we call it a traumatic obsession with existence and mortality and not existing there have been people who not quite to that extent but there have been people especially younger people who have um, an interest and intrigue about death and they are just relieved to find somewhere where they can talk about it because perhaps their friends don't share that interest. And I think some people are more, it weighs more on their minds about their own mortality than others. So it seems to be some people are worried about their, their family, you know, perhaps they've got elderly parents and they don't feel they can talk to them about it. Or conversely, they're elderly themselves and they don't feel they can talk to their children about it. So some people are thinking about their own death and other people are either grieving or concerned about other people's death. Have you ever experienced any notions of death that you just think, wow, that's, that's quite out there? Mm. Occasionally, someone comes along who has a very, I would say, very kind of placid approach to death and just death is nothing at all and I then wonder whether how close they have come to death in terms of have they lost someone close to them and is it still all a bit theoretical and those people do tend to be younger because you know the longer you live the more likely you are to have been bereaved or have some kind of loss so that's the kind of atypical approach I think but most people are taking it very seriously and and as I say this balance between that kind of sense of suffering and loss but also the the chance to speak about people that they've lost in 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 positive and uplifting terms I've come across people who have lost someone very close to them and other people just don't know what to say or what to do and don't realize that they actually want to talk about that person they want to share their memories of that person and so if they don't have the forum for that then it kind of stays bottled up inside them. I've done a little bit of of public speaking should we call it I was a public announcer at a little football club and get on the microphone and you, you say people's names what does it feel like speaking in front of people at a place like this? Well, I do definitely get nervous, but we have this phrase, the non-anxious presence. So especially with funeral services, I, it's such an honour 
to be a guest in other people's lives, for them to open up to you and, and, and tell you about their loved one in order to then co-create a ceremony together. And so when, when the day arrives, um, I know that whatever emotions are in the room, I have to remain calm and non-anxious in order to hold the space in, in a compassionate way and allow people's emotions to rise up as they naturally will. And different, different groups are, you know, act differently. I respond to them differently. We have a wedding coming up tomorrow. Two brides are getting married and, and it's just a joy to be able to speak to 100 people about love. And then, you know, there'll be a, a funeral in a few weeks time and I'll be speaking to, to those people about the love that they felt for the they still feel for the person who's departed and our best way of honoring that person is to continue to live to live a good life i mean you're dealing with the start of people's lives together through marriages the end of people's lives and funerals does it ever not grind you down but becomes quite a lot because you are dealing with these very big moments in people's lives do you ever just think well maybe a break from this would be quite calming it is a an intense role but it does have its kind of lighter sides and I think it's really up to the minister to carve out that time for renewal and recuperation. There is a tradition that after being in ministry for for several years, you take a break, a sabbatical to kind of rejuvenate yourself, I suppose. And I think in terms of the, yeah, these big, big emotions, big experiences, I have a good support network. I have people, colleagues and others that I can, uh, can speak to regularly. And when I first became a minister, I was a little bit taken aback how offhand my colleagues were about, oh, I've got a funeral coming up and this, that and the other. But then I realised it is part of life and it's part of our role. And to, to, to set it in its context as they talk about hatches, matches and dispatches in terms of, we would call them baby namings or baptisms and then weddings and then funerals. It's those are the rites of passage which mark people's lives and I think they're really important to mark with some kind of ritual or ceremony because they are different chapters that people are stepping through. When you were doing your, your training and education for this role, was there much practical help? I think the training has changed substantially since I, I did my training, so I can only speak about my own experience. I think, as I said before, because we come from a tradition where one, you before you've even started your training you probably will have led quite a few services and be quite comfortable with that kind of format. I think the training itself focused mostly on our understanding of Unitarian history and theology and forming, I mean giving us some time for self-reflection to form as ministers and sort of think about how that might be. Even down to I started thinking about okay well what am I going to wear because we don't have a kind of formal uniform. So a lot of my a lot of the time during the training were, were those aspects. We did also go into the practical aspects. We kind of role-played certain types of ceremonies and we did talk about the elements of pastoral care but 
as my tutor said, you can't kind of cover all the different possibilities that you're going to encounter. So the emphasis was really on making sure that you have a good network of more experienced colleagues that you could call upon if you have questions and you need advice. Do you have a big WhatsApp group essentially of reference? Because I'd love that to be the case. So I have I have a covenant group, which is a group of six of us, and we send letters and messages to each other, kind of a letter each month. And then also we, of course, these days are meeting by Zoom and um, connecting. We also go on re- go away on retreat once a year with each other. And those are my kind of closest colleagues, I would say. And then there are other colleagues that I either trained with or have kind of come into my life and my career over the time. So there are some people who I know have strengths in certain areas. And so I know who to who to ask when I have particular questions. Do you ask this question to everyone? So going back to your own your own mortality, do you have you ever thought or do you have a preferred way that you'd like to go? I think peacefully and quickly. An image just came into my mind. Having said for most of this interview that I, you know, I don't think too much about what might happen after death. I once heard a child describe what they thought happened after death and it was sitting in a room full of stars for a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs>